For the Athletic Podcast Network, this is The Update. I'm Adam Copeland. On today's show, we'll talk to Melissa Lockard, who covers minor league baseball for The Athletic, about the players the A's got back in their massive teardown in trading Matt Chapman and Matt Olson just a couple of weeks ago. They also moved on from Chris Bassett, and Jeff Passan reported that at least in the Matt Olson deal, the A's got a haul of prospects back. Did they get as much talent in the deal for Matt Chapman? All things we can talk about with Melissa Lockard, who joins me next. Today is Monday, March 28th. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Melissa Lockard. She covers minor league baseball for The Athletic, and I thought it was a good time to, to pick your brain about some of the rule changes and some of the minor leaguers that came over in some of the trades that the A's have made this offseason. Melissa, how are you? We got some baseball. I know. It's so nice to have everything back, and uh, it was quite a mood change on that Thursday when all of a sudden it went from dead in the water to actually having a season again. So it's it's been great to see how quickly things have gotten caught up to where we would have been uh, you know, at this stage if the lockout had never happened. So very thankful to have baseball to talk about. Now, were you still off and running? Because the minor leagues, like for players who, who weren't on 40-man rosters, they were still going to have minor league spring training. Uh, and I think it was still going to be an important one because of the lost season. And we talked a lot about this last year in 2020, where many minor leaguers didn't get any organized work at all outside of what they were doing on their own. So were you ready to cover minor league spring training regardless of what was going on with the lockout? Yeah. And in fact, you know, we had talked about what the ramifications were going to be. I mean, it was going to be a very interesting situation had the season not started on time because you would have had quite a large group of prospects who are on 40 man rosters, but are there for reasons other than being ready for the big leagues who wouldn't be able to participate. So you would have had, you know, significant prospects on the sidelines again, like you did in 2020, two years out of three would have been really devastating for a lot of their uh, development. You could think of Nick Allen and some of the other players that, you know, the A's had, certainly, you know, the Giants as well. And it all worked out as well as it could have. It's still going to be a little bit strange. Uh, you know, the AAA season will actually open a few days before the big league season, which has never happened as far as I'm aware. And that's going to create some interesting roster situations where teams will still need 30 to 35 players in big league camp to finish off that spring schedule. But their AAA team is going to be playing regular season games. They're going to break camp even before their April 5th open opening day. So who they send to AAA and who they hold back in big league camp for those last five days is going to be really interesting. And then the rest of the minor leagues start on April 8th. So, uh, you know, the situation gets a little murky there as well, because you usually break camp a few days before that. So there's going to be probably a week or two of kind of unsettled roster stuff just leaking over from the lockout. But hopefully by mid-April, we'll sort of be in, in a normal situation again. We'll get to some of the players because I do want to pick your brain about some of the guys that came over in the trades for Matt Chapman and Chris Bassett and Matt Olson. And I know A's fans, this is just another another whirlwind teardown that feels uh, like it's going to be a lost season. But in a couple of years, I feel like you could be looking at some of these players as as real contributors. So we'll talk about that in just a second. But because you've been covering the minor leagues, a lot of the, the rule changes that we've seen implemented or potentially are going to be implemented have already been kind of tried out at some of the minor league levels. I wanted to ask your opinion, number one, about the uh, the enlarged base for me, it's kind of like, would I notice it if they didn't tell me they were they were going to change the size of the bases? Is it going to be all that big of a deal? Uh, what's your thought on that? And, and do you have any information about how it, it helped or changed the game in the minor leagues? 
Yeah, you know, it, it was interesting. They had it in the lower levels, so it wasn't all the way through uh, last year. And there definitely were a lot more stolen bases in those levels. Now, there were a few other factors, I think, uh, rule change-wise, and just, frankly, the, the development of the speed at which pitchers get the ball to the catcher, you know, is different in A ball than it is in double A AA and triple A. But it did seem to help a little bit. You know, the, it makes the bases just that much closer to each other than they are before. Um, and in a bang-bang play, that can make all the difference. It also gives the runners a chance to slide to an area where the foot of the uh, infielder is not going to be, which I think is going to be safer, you know, uh, which I, I think that the majority of the reasoning for this was was safety. You hopefully won't see as many collisions at first base, and certainly that, that second base transition, uh, you know, hands maybe not getting stepped on as often, ankles not getting twisted. So I don't think it's going to be something that you like is in your face that you'll notice a, a ton, but over a period of several years, Years, you know, you may find that that injuries that were sort of impact injuries on base uh, plays go down a little bit. Um, and I think, you know, hopefully it will uh, bring back a little bit of the stolen base element to the game. I think the if they do end up eliminating shifts, you know, that could kind of change the way stolen bases get handled. Um, you know, the way that infielders were being moved over all sorts of crazy places. Sometimes it actually made it easier to steal a base. And I was a little surprised teams didn't take as much advantage of that as they could have. But that may have more of an impact on stolen bases than the bases themselves. But um, but I think it will have a little bit of, a, of an impact on bang-bang plays. Yeah, and I guess we'll just have to see. It's it's It sort of came out of nowhere, I felt like, at least at the big league level. How about pitch clock? Are you in on the pitch clock? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It, it definitely sped up the low A California League, which we can now call California League again, which is very exciting. They did use it there and it did significantly reduce the time of play, I think by like a good 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, it was not an insignificant amount of time that was cut off of these games. And, you know, low A games tend to be fairly long because players are fairly inexperienced. So the fact that you're seeing play get a little crisper even at that level, um, you know, was impressive. They did it in the Arizona Fall League, and it was a bit of a disaster because the pitchers and catchers didn't know each other very well. And so that amount of time was often not enough for them to really fully communicate what pitch they wanted to go with. But I think that's a fairly unique situation. I think most pitching staffs and catchers are are pretty much on the same page. And I saw they've been, uh, you know, working with some of these technology things where they'll actually be able to like press a button and tell the pitcher what the pitch is going to be. Yeah. So, I mean, if you've got that, then, you know, I think there's no reason that that we could probably make the pitch clock even tighter. You know, frankly, like a lot of it is just going through signs. So you don't want it to be so fast that pitchers are literally wearing themselves out because it becomes like a high intensity interval workout as opposed to just uh, pitching. But I do think there are certainly I mean, you can look around the league um, and, you know, there are certain pitchers that they come in and you just know the game is going to grind to a halt. And and we, we do need to kind of eliminate some of that. So I think it'll help that. We're talking to you, Corey Guerin. Uh, that's what we're right. Talking <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and then one more here I'll ask you about, just because the DH is now in both leagues. Uh, I guess we have to stop saying universal DH because that's it's sort of redundant now. It's like it's it's just the DH because both leagues have it. The Shohei Otani rule, I thought this was interesting, that because the DH now exists in both leagues, if a pitcher is also the designated hitter, when he leaves the game as a pitcher, he still remains in the lineup as a hitter. It has to be the Shohei Otani rule because it doesn't really apply to anybody else in baseball except maybe like Michael Lorenzen who could get into bat and uh, and serve as a pitcher at some point as well. What do you think of this rule? And, and, and do you see it as baseball kind of propping up or making sure that their number one product in Shohei Otani is still on the field at all times? 
The idea of a DH is to have a hitter that you're going to designate to be the hitter for the whole game. And if you've got a pitcher who can also hit, taking that away from the team seems sort of unfair. Um, And so, you know, as much as I think it's just exciting to have more Shoei Otani in all circumstances, I think, altogether, I think it just makes sense because I'm guessing he's not going to be the last player that can do this. I think the fact that he is doing this is going to open up the possibility of more players being able to travel this path. You know, in college, it's not uncommon at all to see pitchers who are also very, uh, you know, skilled position players. Obviously, Sean Doolittle was one of those back at right. University of Virginia. And it's, they turn pro and you tend to say, okay, you know, you pick one or the other. That maybe wouldn't necessarily be the case now that you've seen that it can work. And a rule like this, you know, would encourage it. And, um, you know, I think it'd be a lot of fun to, to have more of those kind of guys out there. But, you know, it, ultimately with the way that he's used and the fact that he does tend to go six or seven innings, it's probably only going to be about, you know, 15 extra at bats a year or something like that for him. But I still think it's nice to have that. And, you know, baseball should be protecting their number one product. Absolutely. You know, like uh, people love him. They want to see more of him in any way that they can get more out of him, I think is good for the game. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it'll be uh, it'll be good. I want to see him play. I want to see him come up with an opportunity to win games after he started. Get himself a W there uh, at the end of a game. The little game-winning RBI stat we used to have on the back of baseball cards. That'd be pretty cool yeah. for him. Yeah, that would be that would be sweet for Shohei. Okay, let me ask you uh, just a couple here on some of the players the A's got back in some of these trades. Let's start with the uh, with the Matt Chapman trade. He goes up to Toronto. They get an infielder Kevin Smith, Gunnar Hogland, a left-handed pitcher Zach Logue, I believe is his name, and then left-handed pitcher Kirby Snead. Is this a Hall? Should should people be excited about the players that came back in return for Chapman? Yeah, you know, I think it reminds me more of what the A's got back for Jeff Samarja in, in, in that deal that at the time, I think people were like, Marcus Simeon and Chris Bassett, the White Sox had higher profile prospects than that, you know, looking at like Tim Anderson and some of the other players that were coming up at that same time. But they were more advanced players that were closer to the big leagues and sort of ready to go. Hogland isn't. He's, he's going to be making his pro debut this year. But the rest of them, uh, you know, you could very well see play a significant role in the A's season this year. So you kind of know what you're getting with them, which I think is not a bad thing in some of these trades. There's there's a little bit of safety in knowing um, that a player is kind of who he's going to be. And Smith is a, a very strong defensive player. He's a natural shortstop that I think they'll have slide over to, to play some third base. Had a really big year at the plate last year. Um, you know, it's a top 100 prospect coming into the 2019 season had a rough 2019 and then he kind of disappeared off those lists and then of course we had that lost 2020 season so you know last year was not a surprise necessarily it was more just a return to how he had been before so I think he's a little bit underrated and then Hogland, I mean he would have been a top five pick last year had he not gotten hurt and had Tommy John surgery so you're looking at a potential top five pick arm that you bring into a system that really needed him so I think you know all in all it's 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 not necessarily as sexy as the Braves package that we'll probably talk about next, but um, I think that it could end up being one of those ones where you look back on it and you're like, wow, that, that White Sox group they got, that was the best trade of the ones that they made, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, right. 
Uh, okay, so those are maybe a little bit deeper, but in terms of what they got for, for Matt Olson, I mean, Christian Pash, is a, he was the number one prospect for them last year. I think he came up and played a little bit and struggled hitting an off-speed pitch and at one point had to completely rebuild their outfield before they go on and they win the World Series. It's funny, then they just unload their number one prospect to fill that hole at first base. They also get uh, Joey Estes, a catcher, Shea Langeliers, is that how you say his name? And then Ryan Cusick is another guy who comes over. They get the Braves basically their number one, two, and six and 14 prospects. This seems like more of a haul for Matt Olson. Yeah, that this one's definitely it's it's reminiscent going back a ways, but back when they traded Dan Heron to the Diamondbacks and got Carlos uh, Gonzalez and all those other players. I you know I think um, you know you're looking at uh, you know Posh being somebody who can five tool potential. There's there's some hit uh, swing and miss uh, with him, but I think even a low batting average, 25 homer, 20 steal guy who plays you know plus plus defense in, in center field is extremely valuable. Uh, Shea Langoliers profiles very similarly to, to Sean Murphy, and you'd see how valuable a player like him is. So to have somebody like that in a system where beyond Sean Murphy, they really had no depth at catcher at all is a, is a good add. And then uh, Kusick was actually taken one pick before Max Muncie in last year's draft. Um, so another first-round arm guy they really liked, uh, you know, from the Carolinas areas of Wake Forest, right-hander. And Joey Estes was one of the best pitchers in low A last season. So um, again, they were short on pitching. They were short on catching and they were short on center fielders and and this trade kind of hit all those areas really well all right well we'll have to wait uh probably a couple years to see most of these things panned out but we will see christian posh this year uh he'll definitely slot in and be a key part of the a's lineup in 2022 melissa it's always fun catching up we'll talk uh sometime soon because i want to pick your brain about some giants prospects too but we'll do that in a couple of weeks thanks so much for making time today thanks i appreciate it Great stuff from Melissa Lockard, and uh, yeah, it's tough to tell, and it's real tough to let players go, especially guys like Matt Chapman and Matt Olson, uh, who were still under team control. Chris Bassett, same sort of thing with him going out to the Mets, but the A's did get a haul in return. It's just the cycle seems to be getting so, so tired when you have players who could be here at least for two more years, and you decide to move on anyway. Now, Matt Chapman is a Toronto Blue Jay. Matt Olson is an Atlanta Brave, and he's going to be a Brave for some time after signing an extension for six years down in Atlanta. Thank you to Melissa Lockard. Thank you to Brian, my producer. Thank you to you, the listener. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever it is you're listening. We've got to focus a little bit more on the Golden State Warriors as they get closer and closer to the end of their season. Also, just over a week away from opening day. They open next Thursday, and the Giants will open next Friday at home. So we'll dial in a little bit more on the lineup decisions, the roster decisions, and the cuts and options for the Giants in the days and weeks ahead. Until then, enjoy the week. We'll talk to you Wednesday.